1: In Australia, we've recently marked Reconciliation Week, which this year had the theme of All In This Together. But as events around the world have dramatically illustrated over the last couple of weeks, we're still a long way from achieving true reconciliation. Here at Democracy Sausage, we acknowledge that the journey towards reconciliation is the responsibility of all of us every day. So with that in mind... We acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we're recording today and pay our respects to the Elders, past, present and emerging.
2: I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. Oh, mate, this is just impossible. Too many people were confused. Uh, You bet you are. Uh, You bet I am. I have always believed in miracles. That's not a policy.
1: Not now, not ever. I mean... (laughs) These comments are completely inappropriate.
2: I'm sure she's right.
1: But I ain't spending any
2: time on it. How pathetic. You're a classic space invader. Disgusting, mud-sucking creatures. You should be ashamed of yourselves. Oh, fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. Taste of democracy. Very good. Thanks for joining us again on Democracy Sausage, a joint production of policyforum.net and the Australian National University. I'm Mark Kenney from the ANU's Australian Studies Institute and the School of Politics and International Relations. Now, we've talked on this program at some length about Boris and Britain and Brexit and bravado. And we've looked also at the moral turpitude of a darkly mendacious president in the United States, the modern world's mad king, who has beguiled the Republican Party and co-opted it in his willingness to sacrifice any principle of decency or national leadership in order to get reelected. I said on this podcast months ago, right at the start of the pandemic that it would be the end of Donald Trump because he would demonstrate no ability to rise to the emergency. Emergency, Indeed, that he was the first president I'd seen who had defiantly refused to grow and learn on the job in, in any real way. I don't mind telling you there have been reasons to doubt this prediction at times because even as the US became the world leader for infections and deaths, the adolescent president's popularity dipped only slightly. But events recently, I think, suggest my original diagnosis was right. I guess time will tell. Trump's supporters, a disgracefully supine, even servile GOP, and a right-wing religious base of hateful hypocrites, racists and bigots, show no sign of shifting, suggesting there is no flaw in the sinkhole of their moral abandon. But neither is the President's base growing. Those opposed to him, however, are being energised on a whole new level – And remember, if they all vote, he loses. Former top general turned Republican Secretary of State Colin Powell has broken a long-term silence to back up a series of conservative voices, many of them also retired generals and admirals, to slam Trump as a danger to the Constitution. Names like John Kelly, John Allen and former Defence Secretary James Mattis argue this is the first president who does not even pretend to want to unite the country. And Powell says he's the first president that for whom he would use the term liar. He said, I've never used that in the four, in respect of the four presidents I've served under before. So he's very, very specifically singling him out. But these are at core depressing stories about the degenerate nature of machine politics, where marginal advantage, advantage and machismo run amuck. Civilization does still exist. It even thrives closer to home in places like New Zealand. And that will be the focus of our talk today, as voters prepare for an election in September. Joining me, as always, is Dr Maria Taflaga from the School of Politics and International Relations. Howdy, Maria.
3: Hello, all. How are you?
2: I'm very well, thanks. Uh, I guess you've, uh, like everyone else, been watching uh, these um, remarkable uh, demonstrations, protests around the world. We've seen them in Australia as well. They're happening during a time of a pandemic and there's a fairly spirited debate about about uh the whole black lives matter movement you know bringing these people together for these protests at this time um but um it's not an easy one to unpick is it this is a this is a historic moment where you can really feel feel something changing in real time uh and uh some judgments are being made here, and I guess uh, history will determine whether those judgments, like the idea of bringing a lot of people together for for protest, you know, mass event, uh, was a wise or a, an unwise thing to do.
3: Well, I guess what sort of um, strikes me about uh, this moment in time is is the fact that the the death of George Floyd and uh, the scenes of unrest in the United States seems to have finally cut through. on the uh, the issue of Indigenous incarceration rates and deaths in uh, custody in this country, which is disappointing given the sense that we had a Royal Commission into precisely this issue almost 30 years ago now, uh, which delivered more than 300 recommendations about how to resolve this Issue, most of which remain uh, sort of languishing on the sidelines, and a lot of these uh, recommendations made in this report, um, you hear the the same problems uh, echoed and repeated in uh, recent cases in which Indigenous people have died in custody, which go to the fact that the police do not enforce their own regulations, uh, that Indigenous people are likely to be uh, incarcerated because they may be or appear to be drunk uh, in public and the fact that the rate of... Uh, sorry, that the age of criminality in this country is very low at ten years old, which means that uh, from places like the Northern Territory, nearly nearly all young people in prison are actually Indigenous, and the rate of Indigenous incarceration of young people is fifty percent. Uh, that's the population of young people in prison, which compares to thirty percent of all prisoners in. Australian prisons right now who are adults, uh, who are Indigenous. And that is a shocking comparison with the United States, where In the United States, the adult population of African-Americans is 12%, and they represent about 30% of the prison population. And here, the adult population of Indigenous people is is just over 2%, yet they represent 30% of the prison population. So this makes Indigenous peoples some of the most incarcerated people on the planet. This is an issue that advocates have been campaigning on for decades now. Um, And it is finally, I guess, almost a relief to see that it is sort of finally smashed through the indifference of public discussion. And whilst there are certainly concerns around mass gatherings and a time of the pandemic, and I understand why political leaders encouraged people to stay at home, but some of the criticism of protesters is I think tone deaf to use the sort of moral language around the sacrifices people have made in relation to COVID-19, but not to use the same kind of moral and, and anguish language around how Indigenous people feel about the fact that, you know, their people are more likely to be incarcerated, that there are actually more deaths in custody for people who are not charged and not serving a, a sentence yet, suggests that the problem of too many Aboriginal people being incarcerated is the actual issue here. And while some of the factors that underscore Aboriginal people's incarceration rates at really high levels are complex and relate to the interaction of race and poverty, some of them are actually fairly easy to change. It's just to do with the way regulations are enforced, to do with laws around public drunkenness and changing the age of criminal uh, responsibility. So, I don't think it was enough for our political leaders to say, please stay off the streets when we have report after report, coroner finding after coroner finding now saying that racism is a factor in these deaths, not only in prisons, but also in hospitals. It's not enough for them to ask people to stay at home, but to offer nothing to Indigenous peoples.
2: Yes, you make a, a whole range of really excellent points there, Maria. It, it, it is interesting, though, when you look at this from uh, in the context of the pandemic, because political leaders right across the the spectrum, that is, Labor, uh, state premiers, uh, the coalition uh, at the Commonwealth level, health officials, have been running an argument right through this pandemic of seeking maximum public cooperation, sort of buy-in, as we often describe it, uh, in the process of social distancing and limiting uh, any sort of unnecessary gathering and essentially not doing uh, things that are... Uh, uh discretionary behaviors which expose you but also by extension the community to um to to risk of infection and therefore of, of the of the infection of the virus spreading then we get this issue emerge um which uh no one would have predicted i mean the the, the base issue as you quite rightly point out maria has been around uh, uh for, forever and certainly has been the subject of, um, empirical knowledge now for 30 years since that, uh, that royal commission. Um, but it nonetheless does occur at the time of this pandemic. And at the, so at the same, at that very moment, we find that, uh, government leaders, again on both sides of the political divide, continue that message as this, uh, this, um, protest movement uh, looked like staging these rallies on the weekend you know we had state labour premiers as well as liberal premiers and the prime minister and various other uh, people at the at the federal level discouraging people from attending these rallies you know imploring imploring them not to and indeed there were there were attempts by new south wales police to to have it have it declared unlawful so that uh, you know so that arrests could be made and so forth it 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 is quite a conundrum, and it's it's um you know bearing in mind it's at a time when we don't have sporting events underway because uh, they're thought to be too dangerous for people to gather in 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 uh, one place uh, It's not an easy pivot for um for authorities to make, is it?
3: No, it's not an easy pivot for authorities to make, and it's not an easy decision for protesters to make too, and I think what was encouraging about these protests is that generally speaking, most people were wearing masks, the police were handing out masks, people were attempting to socially distance. It is a calculated risk that people have sought to undertake. And, you know, and I understand why governments would seek to discourage people from meeting and congregating on the streets at such a time. I think that is an entirely reasonable position for governments to make. But I guess what governments could have done in addition was to actually offer some real progress on some of these issues as they are well ventilated. And I think the final thing I would sort of say is about protests is that there is not a single successful protest movement in history that has ever been applauded for its uh, judicious timeliness, its appropriateness of action. The, th- the fact is, is that protests by their very definition are disturbing of the public fi- uh, peace, disturbing of public norms. They are always criticized as inappropriate. And in a global pandemic, that calculation and that acuteness is even more exaggerated because there are specific and clear trade-offs in a way that perhaps might not be present at another time. But you can't pick your, you can't pick the moment when something is salient and Indigenous people, like there have been 430 deaths since 1991. The Royal Commission that brought that that was instigated to investigate those crimes saw 100 deaths between 1980 and 1989. That you know, this is for for how small the indigenous population is. You know, well they're dying. So Mm. you know, it's it's a difficult decision for public policymakers to make, and. The fact is, is that protesters will be held to account if we see a spike in coronavirus cases. That's, that's what's, that, that will be what happens. But I don't think it's the way the government has painted it as a sort of simple, like, you should just stay home kind of message. I don't think really cuts the mustard given how devastating this is for the community that it disproportionately affects.
2: Well, that's that's an interesting point. I do think you can argue another side to it, though, and say, well, you know, because the message all the way through this pandemic has been about... Um, about making the point to people that it is not just you that you are being asked to protect; it is the community. That if you become a vector for the disease, if you contract the virus yourself uh, and pass it on to others, uh, they may be people you know in your family or household. They may be people you interact with in some other capacity. Uh, then you know that is a um, that 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 is how the virus spreads, and that is something you want to avoid. And has been you know the messaging has all been all about uh, social cohesion ironically uh, achieved through social distancing um and if you say if if uh, if there's an outbreak from this that uh, protesters will be held to account it is at least theoretically possible that um if there is an outbreak from this that people who were not even at the protest will die as a result of contracting the virus now that is a serious matter and i do think therefore there is a serious conundrum here at the heart of this and in, in this moment. I, I mean, don't get me wrong, on balance, I am glad that this issue has achieved the momentum now that it has achieved. It's a, an extraordinary development out of all of this, um, initially unrelated, of course, to the pandemic, but, you know, you can't avoid the timing. And as you say, Maria, the timing's never going to be good and authorities are never going to welcome being held to account for these failures. But, um, there are, you know, there are competing moral questions as well as questions about, uh, about law, about order, about political accountability. There are just sort of simple moral questions here as well. And they are, they are, um, they all need to be taken into consideration. Let's just hope uh, that what we get out of this is the optimum outcome, which is that we've had this issue very strongly ventilated. We've seen this massive upwelling of a broad uh, community, uh, Call and demand for change in this area, and um, and if we don't get any uh, any sequelae from from this in terms of the virus spreading, I think that is a, a, an excellent result. Uh, and obviously, there's so much more work to be done here. Let's bring in now our um, our other distinguished guests uh, because uh, we do want to talk about this, but also uh, New Zealand's election coming up. It's a welcome back to Associate Professor Jennifer Lee Marshment from the University of Auckland School of Social Sciences Politics and International Relations. Welcome back Jennifer.
4: Thank you. It's good to be here again.
2: It's terrific to have you. Is, 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 have you had similar, um, um, you know, up, uprisings of uh, or upwellings of, of, of social concern about um, the, the you know the Black Lives Matters or, or sort of based in, around this Black Lives Matters protest? So there was a march.
4: I don't know that we've. It's been top of the agenda. As such, because what's happened is now that the crisis from the pandemic has eased, everybody's starting to move back into trying to get back to work. And also the election suddenly is taking centre place and we've had suddenly a, a rise or got moved back to a lot more focus on the party leaders. And we've also had a change in party leader in the National Party. So I think there's so much that, going yes. on that it's, it's a crowded space at the moment.
2: Terrific. I'm also delighted to welcome to the barbecue area for the first time Professor Janine Haywood. Uh, she's from uh, politics at the University of Otago uh, in New Zealand also. Uh, welcome, Janine.
1: Thank you. Thanks for the invitation.
2: Oh, it's a great pleasure. Now, uh, you will have heard um, what Maria and I were talking about, uh, Janine, um, in terms of this, these protests. Did you have any observation to make about that? I mean, the the, the, the as I say, the, the timing of this, as Maria was making the point, you know, you, you don't get to choose the timing of these things. They're never convenient for authorities. Uh, but it is a, a very kind of um, finely balanced equation. Governments could hardly switch from discouraging uh, discretionary mass gatherings to simply saying, yeah, look, it'll be fine, not not just to have a lot of people in one space, but have a lot of people in one space, many of them yelling, um, you know, really, really putting their, their lungs into the process, uh, making their point. Um, but uh, these are the sorts of behaviours, of course, which I guess worry the health authorities. So it, very much a, a conundrum.
1: It is. I mean, I agree with Jennifer that um, we're in a, um, a busy time in our politics, but I think, uh, you know, we did have um, protests here. I think the other circumstances that are slightly different um, for New Zealand is that we've had, as you may know, zero cases now for I think it's 16 or 17 days in a row and only one active case in the country. So in terms of our government's response to those gatherings that did happen, um, they essentially said that the police would use their discretion and effectively turn a blind eye to it. I mean, we're hoping today that the government will make an announcement that New Zealand will move to what we're calling Level 1, which is essentially business as usual, Domestically, but still the borders being shut. So I think for New Zealand, the conundrum is a little bit eased by that—that that it was against the rules for those um, mass protests to happen, but there was a sense that you could turn a blind eye because we knew that they were highly unlikely to have any health outcomes.
2: Yes, and uh, very much a higher purpose here as well in terms of the um, you know the, the sentiment being expressed because people's lives are being lost. Uh, certainly in Australia, certainly in the US, are being lost because of um, uh, you know lower life expectancy, social disadvantage, uh, appallingly high rates of incarceration um, uh, of Indigenous people,
1: and that is certainly true in New Zealand as well. So you know you made the comment about New Zealand being a slice of somewhat more civilized life at the moment. That's true, but let's not get carried away because yeah. the rates of Māori incarceration are just shockingly high in New Zealand. And we have ongoing issues with the treatment of Māori um, women and children by child protection services and other places. And that, that emerged in our news again this morning. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think these issues are being brought to the fore, you know, within the context of what's going on globally.
2: Yes, and I'm glad you make that point because, uh, yeah, certainly nowhere is, uh, nowhere is perfect. In fact, uh, nowhere is even close to perfect on, on these questions. And, uh, it's a, um, an ongoing problem in all places where, uh, indigenous people are, um, are at a significant disadvantage to, uh, particularly where they are in a significant minority. And it's the case for a number of minorities around the world, irrespective of indigeneity as well. But let's uh focus now well, because you you've both mentioned the the the, the political environment the fact that uh, New Zealand is now proceeding notwithstanding all of this uh towards an election uh it's been a um an extraordinary time arguably i guess Jacinda Ardern is um perhaps the world's most successful anti-trump in some ways i mean i, I can't think of a of a world leader who in so many ways is so different to Donald Trump, um, but she's no lock for for winning. I guess uh, I'll be interested to hear your your views on that when we come to it. But can you just say, for you know, paint us a picture? Perhaps you first, Jennifer, on um, on Jacinda Ardoon's state of uh, play at the moment I mean her popularity has risen as a result of um, I guess the uh, successful management of New Zealand through this pandemic. is that the only re- is that true for a start and is it the only reason?
4: her popularity has definitely risen as has that of most leaders around the world because that's what happens in crisis. the focus goes on the government, the handling of it and if they do a reasonable job then they get a bo- boost but it's not most definitely not the only reason why she is so popular. There are two key reasons. One is she has a very relatable brand and that's something she had in the 2017 election. It's something she'd built up over a number of years before becoming party leader and then prime minister and she's managed to retain that and by relatable what I mean is that she seems to understand people, she's very human, very friendly in the same way that um, former national prime minister John Key was. But then she's also added competence to that through being prime minister. And competence is something she was weak on in 2017, but going into 2020, she's strong because of a handling of several crisis, um, crises, not just um, COVID. And so that's really helped to, you know, not i can say consolidate, but actually create and consolidate an image of competence. And that puts her in a very strong position to have both of those two elements, which often don't go together, but they, the public want them to go together. They want leaders who understand them and represent them and leaders who can get the job done. So she's a strong position in that respect. But, and it would be interesting to hear Janine's perspectives on this next, but I don't think anybody should take it for granted because 2020 has been such a volatile year and I think there are underlying trends and tensions as well as disappointment with Labour's delivery on key issues like housing.
2: Yes, what do you uh, have to say about those uh, those points, uh, Janine?
1: Well, I mean, I agree with Jennifer. She has, um, I think... Uh, Under normal circumstances, the Prime Minister rates sort of around 40%, and you saw her um, take a jump in popularity after the Christchurch shootings, which she also was seen to manage very effectively. And again, you've seen this jump. I think she's now, Jennifer can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think she's now our most popular Prime Minister ever. She's got the highest ratings we've ever seen. But... um, but again, I mean, crazy stuff happens in politics. It certainly happens in New Zealand politics. I would be reluctant to make any kinds of predictions about what could happen. I think, you know, as we move through into a new stage, um, the focus is going to very strongly turn to economic recovery, and there, I think, you will start to see some of those um, ide- some of that ideological positioning happening again. The question will return as to who's going to best lead us out of this. Um, crisis, economically in particular, that'll certainly be what the National Party is pushing. And that, I think, will make voters reset a little bit. Probably some of them will kind of return to their natural home. I mean, the National Party is New Zealand's party of choice historically in terms of who we vote for. Um, so look, anything could happen. Can I ask,
3: um, was there a criticism of Ardern's elimination? sort of strategy uh, when it when it sort of came in? Um, and what has been the sort of reaction to that over time?
4: Well, it, it, it's, it's varied. I mean, to, at the beginning she was criticised for not being strong enough and not locking down the borders soon enough. You know, the National Party under Simon Bridges criticised her for that. But then as soon as, you know, we went into lockdown and things started easing on the health front and the number of cases started, you know, declining or slowing and then declining, then immediately people kept pushing for more, you know, relaxation. So as soon as we move to one level, they're immediately starting to push, you know, to move to the next level. And then the National Party started talking about um, whether, you know, she... And there's some criticism as to whether or not she was too strict and comparisons with Australia, although you can't really compare the two countries because they're so different.
2: Well, that's an interesting point, I think, uh, because there's certainly been a lot of comparison uh, with New Zealand uh, on on this side of the the ditch, as they say, um, because... Uh, the, I guess the argument eventually became that, uh, New Zealand was pursuing eradication and we were pursuing suppression in Australia, uh, but that we were getting functionally toward the same end. Um, now obviously, as you say, you've only got one active case in New Zealand. That is, that is pretty close to eradication, complete eradication. Whereas in Australia, uh, uh that, you know, we're, we're still having active cases. Um, but uh yeah both countries have been extraordinarily successful one are, what what one of the things that's fascinated me and I'd be interested in your thoughts on this too maria uh, that has fascinated me about uh Jacinda Ardern in terms of um her standing around the world is that you know she is probably the highest profile New Zealand prime minister in in the country's history um and she would it seems to me anyway she would win an election hands down outside her country if such an electorate existed uh, but it's um, it's you know people have long said that uh, you know you can't guarantee under the New Zealand uh, electoral system and you know the political situation the way it is that she would win so there's a you know it's one of those things where outside her country she's extremely well known and and very very highly regarded may not be uh, cutting a lot of ice with with all New Zealand voters
3: Oh, well, I guess it's a bit like um, when you were a kid and you sort of fantasized about going home with your aunt because she was fun <laughs> and didn't necessarily you know make you eat your greens or something like that um, which is um, which is perhaps how outsiders um, may kind of view a dern for for Australian listeners that uh, probably don't quite understand the new zealand voting system it's It's basically um, a mixed member proportional system, so it's a proportional representation voting system in which um which is a lot like basically it's the German model, which produces um, typically minority um, results. So no party with a clear election and then uh, coalitions are are formed, uh, which is why people sort of say that it is unpredictable and uh, why, for example, there are a sort of a sort of whole spectrum of political parties in New Zealand that um, would not be viable in Australia, for example, such as like a, a libertarian party, a Maori party, um and a variety of other uh, uh, parties.
2: Look, um what I might do at this at this point is just take a quick break, and when we come back, let's delve a little bit further into that because I do think um, we can take more interest. Uh, as we proceed toward the election in the New Zealand system if we have a better understanding of the electoral system and of the of the parties. And uh, I'd like to uh, explore that just a bit further with our New Zealand experts here. So let's take a quick break and be back with you in just a moment.
0: Introducing Wondersuite from com. Website creation is hard.
1: Or find us at
0: policyforum.net slash podcasts.
2: Welcome back now. Just before the break, Maria was giving us a, a very excellent thumbnail sketch of the New Zealand system. For those in Australia, uh, there are some key differences, as she was saying. I mean, we have you know, a Senate and a House of Representatives, New Zealand has a single legislature or unicameral system as she was saying, 120 seats. 72 of those are, are geographic constituencies like we have in our lower house and 48 are party list seats. Um, but one of the features of it is that it, uh, since that uh, system has been in operation, um, it has not produced a, an election where one side or other has had a majority in its own right. So it's kind of culturally different uh, from the Australian system. It's almost set up so that uh, there is this... Um, this need to negotiate in order to to form government. The result in 2017 was uh, was um, certainly no runaway win for Labor, but Labor was able to form a coalition with the help of Winston Peters. Uh, I'd be interested in um, in both of your views, Professor Janine Haywood and uh, Professor Jennifer Lee Marshman, um, on. Whether Winston Peters will be the king or queen maker again after this election is that inevitable? Do you think?
4: I would say it's not inevitable. The only thing that's inevitable is that we don't know, and therefore we can't be sure of anything because the last election was so unclear. Um, National Party actually got more votes and seats, I think. So, but they've mm-hmm. now they're now beleaguered. They're polling so badly. Arden's doing so much better, and Labor are doing better that really we none of us can really predict the election. At least I wouldn't. I think it would be too dangerous. And it's just, it's anybody's game, really. And it's a very complicated situation. Janine, what do you think?
1: Well, I think perhaps the the um, information to add into Maria's um, description of the system is the thresholds. So there are two ways. Um, the party vote basically determines the proportion of seats that a party gets in Parliament. So we, do, um, a, a, we cast a party vote and we vote for somebody to represent us from our electorate. Um, you have to get 5% of that party vote for a party to be represented in Parliament. So that's one of the thresholds. But there's also a second threshold, which is the electorate seat threshold. And that means that if a party can get one electorate candidate elected, that sort of um, uh, trumps, if you like, the um, party vote threshold and they that candidate brings into Parliament with them whatever proportion um, they get on the party list. So it'll mean for a party-like act, which is our um, most conservative right-wing party, they um, fairly regularly will get one electorate seat. Um, they're well below the 5% threshold, but occasionally they've had enough of a party vote at sort of 2, two and a half, three 25 3% to bring a couple of other MPs with them. So the real challenge for New Zealand First in terms of their positioning in 2020 is really those threshold questions. So they are beneath the 5% threshold um, at the moment. And you can see even now the positioning that New Zealand First is taking in terms of distancing itself from its coalition partners to try and start talking to its voters about its achievements and what it's doing specifically, because they really do need to either reach that 5% threshold or um, win an electorate seat in order to bring some other candidates into Parliament with them. I mean, either of those things happen or really they have no... Um, you know, no input, and in who gets who becomes the
2: government. So, I guess a degree of market differentiation is inevitable, as uh, as the parties shape up to uh, you know to seek a share of the vote at an election. Yes. how has how has Winston Peters' constituency, um, which is quite conservative as I understand it, how has that uh, that the, that political base uh, accepted the idea of putting into power a progressive Labor government?
4: I'm not sure they ever did. I mean, our analysis of data in the 2017 election suggested this was going to be a real problem for them going forward. Because, uh, yes, there are some left leaning voters amongst them, um, amongst the party base. But there's also, as you said, conservative right wing wingers as well. So it's a real problem. Having said that, they might be able to make the case that they've made a difference. They put a break on some of the Labour government's proposals, such as they were Quite instrumental in stopping the Labour government from introducing capital gains tax on property, because they've got a lot of um, you know senior voters with investment properties who want to keep that that income for them, for their family. Um, so they may be able to make claims about that. But even so, I still think we may likely see more right wing populist type uh, appeals to their base, particularly given the difficult economic challenges that are going to come to the forefront by the September election.
3: So this unlikely uh, coalition that Ardern, uh was basically put together. Um, how has that impacted on her capacity to to deliver uh, her election agenda and her promises?
4: Hugely. So I interviewed her first chief of staff, Mike Munro, about this, and he said everything was slower. Everything to get anything done required a lot more negotiation, a lot more conversations across the three parties. And then there've been specific instances like capital gains tax. So it definitely has meant that they've either had to abandon the key policies or water them down significantly to get them through. But I don't reply and say, but but at least we did something. You know, the voters didn't give them the numbers to do more.
1: And I think this is um, what New Zealand is learning about MMP. We are tending to uh, uh, well, questions are raised when people talk about any party being a king or queen maker party because what we can see is that no um no party you know is like the tail wagging the dog in terms of getting what they want that when you have that coalition emerge as a result of an election like we had in 2017 it's a matter of moderation i mean you know nobody <laughs> they have to find their common ground and it sometimes doesn't look necessarily anything like how either of those parties would look left to their own devices.
2: Uh, Jacinda Ardern hadn't been around a whole long, a whole lot of time really before she became Prime Minister. She'd been Labour leader for a relatively short period of time. I, I assume that she therefore wasn't particularly well known by voters, notwithstanding uh, that she'd, she'd had some success in, in building her profile. Funnily enough, the, the same situation now applies to her direct opponents, the Nationals or the National Party. Um, Todd Muller is that, is that how you pronounce his name, or is it Muller? Yeah. Muller. Um, he's quite new in the job. That the, the leadership changed very recently. Indeed, is that a disadvantage for his party, or is his party uh, now better positioned than it was before by virtue of having what they presume, what they hope is a is a you know a leader with more chance of success?
4: Um, I'd say it's given them the opportunity to reposition, refresh their brand and move away from the unpopular. The former leader, Simon Bridges, who was very unpopular. And so it's given them that chance. The only thing with that chance is you have to take it. And so to take it, you need to stand back for a while, reflect, and you need to come up with an alternative political product. And I don't know that there's been a very successful start to that, that phase.
1: What do you think, Janine? No, I agree. I mean, I think... Um the media has been pretty quick to judge that leadership transition and to to judge it you know fairly harshly and exact for exactly that reason that um, that Todd Muller came into the role, made an all right first impression, they had a really unfortunate first week um, with a whole series of missteps, and now are, are facing criticisms that they don't have a plan. you know that there was it was more about the leadership change than it was actually about. Producing an alternative view, so the you know the, all of these kinds of politics are sort of swirling around um, at the moment. I do think that um, I do think that Muller is significantly less well known than Jacinda Ardern was when she came into power. Well, that's and, interesting. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think he does still have an opportunity to uh, you know address those early missteps by making himself better known. Um, and making a better appearance, frankly, but he hasn't got a lot of time to do it in.
2: Is he, would, would you describe him as a hardliner, as an ideologue, or is he a pragmatist? I mean, these descriptions are always quite difficult, of course. I mean, there are plenty of descriptions that go around about Scott Morrison. Probably all of those descriptions get used at times, but I guess the consensus is that uh, you know, he's a conservative, but he's also a pragmatist. Um, what do we know about Todd Muller?
4: Not a lot yet. Really? I mean, his, his opening speech was was quite positive. He talked about the need to not just oppose the government for the sake of it but to be constructive.
3: How refreshing. But
4: he hasn't followed it through. So what, <laughs> it a great opening position. this is what I'm going to do and it's great, but then I'm actually not going to actually do that when it comes to it. So for the moment it feels to me like they've changed the, the salesperson but they haven't changed what they're selling. They've got to change what they're selling. And I still don't know that National have really ever got over the fact they didn't actually win the election. They still think they should have done and that they'll automatically get back into government. Having said that, there is a, you know, there is that discontent, that right wing discontent that we've seen around the world, around in the US and the UK that led to Trump and so on. That I, I wonder whether that's lurking underneath in New Zealand society and whether that might be in, you know, massively exacerbated because of the post-COVID economic situation. And is that something they're going to pick up on? So I don't know. Janine, what do you think? Do you have that sense of that
1: right wing? Absolutely. Problem? We don't. Uh, yeah, we just don't know enough yet. Um, I, it kind of feels like it's all still settling into place. I think he's still finding uh, his feet. He he described his first week as um, being like having your um, mouth over a fire hydrant, which I thought was a pretty shocking analogy. <laughs> Probably fairly true for the week he'd had. Um, but, yeah, so uh, look, look, uh, who knows how things will happen. I mean, even by the end of last week, there were rumours swirling again that National was thinking about another leadership change. No, really? And, oh, my gosh, yeah. <laughs> but then um, those rumours, you know, they'd been swirling for a long time with Bridges, and we know that there are a lot of unhappy people in that caucus, so that could just be, you know, uh, having a bit of a stir up. But this just looks very like the Labour Party was looking prior to Jacinda Ardern coming into the leadership. Parties go through these phases, um, you know, and it'll take some time to play out.
2: Well, they say nothing focuses the mind like losing, and if they think they're going to lose, you know, sometimes you get panic reactions from, from MPs if they're worried that, uh, you know, they're going over a cliff. They they do some strange things. What were you going to say, Maria?
3: I was going to say, how is Ardern, um seeking to position herself? I mean, obviously, the last election, she was sort of positioning herself as a fresh Kind of breath of fresh air, really. Um, she's now prime minister. She's sort of saddled with the decisions she's made, and obviously the reflected glow of of her many successes. So, is she sort of? Is it sort of like a Whitlam in seventy four? You know, uh, give me a mandate to do what I said I would do, or or is she positioning herself differently?
4: That's a really good question. I'm not sure. I know. So you've made me think that is it the problem with Arda and the one weakness is that. We don't really know what her vision is. Now, that could be because she became party leader eight weeks before the last election and she never had the chance to lead the policy design process and lay out her vision. Um, Is it also because she's been running a a very complex coalition government, so she couldn't really say what her vision was? She didn't get out and campaign for capital gains tax, for example. She didn't get behind that, even though she campaigned before when she was in, in opposition. So I don't know, is she just going to go for safe hands or try and say she's a safe leader and, yes, i will worry about jobs more because they, they labelled the last budget as being about jobs, jobs, jobs? Or is she going to take the opportunity to say, look, this is what we've done with a very constricted mandate. You give me your vote this time. More if you give you your vote and then I can do way more and I can do transformative things. I'm not sure.
1: I'm not sure either. I mean, I guess we will wait and see. I think she's in an extraordinary Position. I mean, she knows that um, New Zealanders currently, the, the ratings show that our trust in government is just unbelievably high. In fact, our trust in government, our trust in our public sector and even our trust in the police is polling very high. Our support for the action that the government took is like 92, 93 percent, which is really astonishing. New Zealanders don't agree on anything. Um, and that's really high. And um, and she know and we were extraordinarily compliant throughout this process. So I think when we moved into our level four lockdown, um, Google tracker showed that our movements dropped by ninety one percent. So I kind of was being slightly sceptical and thinking there was a fair dose of good luck in the fact that our lockdown had been so effective, um, because I wondered how compliant we actually were being. But we were being incredibly compliant. So. She's a Prime Minister who has huge trust and, you know, the population has high trust in her and generally in government and she's polling very well. I think the danger for her is that that's not seen to be taken for granted or to be seen to, you know, that the opposition doesn't manage to make that seem arrogant. So she's very careful, I I notice, in her language to talk about the team all the time. She's very, you know, self-deferential, doesn't – doesn't sort of receive those accolades happily. So I think that's going to be part of her strategy to try and bring that Labour team along with her and make it look very much like a team effort.
2: I wonder if the uh, you know the timing is going to be a, a problem for her um, because, uh, as you say, I mean, she's riding very high at the moment in terms of her, her, her own popularity. Uh, you've got, as you say, high levels of trust and confidence in government in what's been done but the longer this goes on you know the tail of it in terms of the economic dislocation uh, job losses and 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 um and the hardships that businesses are going through and and so on obviously that starts to wear thin with people over time now the elections not so far away but it's far enough away for some of those feelings to mature and I'm I'm reminded that You know, Winston Churchill was a hero at the end of the Second World War, but he still got voted out the first opportunity after that. Uh, The same with uh, Ben Chifley in Australia, very popular in terms of uh, taking up after Curtin, but was still voted out in '49. Even George Herbert Walker Bush, the first Bush, Was extraordinarily popular uh, at one point, but then became a one-term president. There are a few other examples of of leaders doing this. So, uh, the the public mood can shift quite quickly. I guess that's what uh, Todd Muller will be looking to capitalize on once the crisis has passed. You know, it's it's managing the peace almost rather than how you how you get through the war. Uh, do you think the timing is a problem?
4: I was going to say, and that's exactly what nationalists are gonna, going to argue. They're going to say they're the party of business. They're the party that got New Zealand through the GFC, the global financial crisis. They're the best party to take um, New Zealand out of this and forward They're party of business, obviously. So if they can come up with very clear and constructive, innovative ideas that capture the public's imagination and give business some hope that things can be turned around, then they could they could knock Ardern off particularly as Labor is traditionally not seen as quite weak on the economy, thanks thanks to negative branding by the National Party when they were in power. So that's why we can't take it for granted, the, the election result.
2: Yes. Now, there's a couple of other um, issues that are going to be uh, like questions, referendum questions that are going to be asked of voters on polling day as well, September 19, I think it is. Um, And one goes to the use of marijuana, personal use of marijuana, and one goes to, uh, euthanasia. These are, I guess you would say, progressive issues with uh, a fair amount of incendiary potential, uh, in, in any polity. Certainly in Australia, they have been. Will they, will those questions be a factor in, in the election itself, or are they not owned by? either side of politics in particular
1: they're not they're not um owned by uh, any of the parties necessarily but there is the assumption that having those um referendum questions there may ha- well it'll be interesting to see what effect that has on turnout um it may not make a difference it may just mean that the response to the referendum's higher than you might otherwise get when it's not held with an election but i think there's some you know d- um consideration of the fact that it may boost the youth vote um, a little bit to have those as issues of particular interest. So I guess, you know, we just need to wait and see what impact they have. That could mean if more young people turn out
4: to actually vote because of the referendum issues, that could mean a boost for Labour, because the last election in Odena attracted a lot of support, but despite the party's best efforts, it didn't necessarily turn that into actual votes, not because people went and voted for something else, it's just they didn't vote. So I think it, that could have an impact on on the election. But interestingly, euthanasia has been, or the End of Life Act, has been pioneered by the ACT Party, which is the right wing minor party, or somewhat right wing, and um, marijuana.
2: Is that a libertarian? libertarian party? Yes. So is it's,
4: it? but they traditionally yeah. work with the national Party, so that, that's why I say that. And then marijuana has been um, pioneered by Chloe Swarbrick, a Green Party MP. So it's sort of the these referendums are the issues of the minor parties. So it adds a quite an interesting element to the debate and whether we'll get, we might get a bit of a clash, a gen, an age divide between youth and seniors in the election, which could make things a bit more tricky
1: to navigate. And I think, too, just to pick up on um, Jennifer's point about, the, you know, the, these referendums really come from different political parties. I think, you know, just to be pedantic for a moment, we don't. We don't vote for our leaders. so um, And I think that what you will see heading into the election, regardless of Ardern and Muller, is New Zealanders um, engaging with parties and party positions and policies. So, um, you know, the only people who can actually vote for Ardern and Muller are those the people in their electorates. Otherwise, New Zealanders are being confronted with that question about which party they want to see in government. And that's where I think all of the parties and you can see it already beginning to happen are going to try and stamp out their their territory. One of the things we do know about MMP is that it's really brutal on minor parties, so particularly parties that go into coalition government, they just tend to get the life sucked out of them, and they have to find some way to um, capture that vote that they had again. So that'll be high in the minds of the Green Party of ACT and New Zealand First as they head into this, and the Māori Party, which is positioning to try and get itself back into Parliament again.
3: So housing is a really big issue here in Australia. It's tied to debates about inequality. The last time I was in New Zealand, uh, the, the price of property in Auckland was one of the only things people wanted to talk about. Ardern
4: made a lot of promises around this. Yeah. Uh, how
3: how is she has that gone for her? Not
4: very well. Um, in 2019 she declared it was a year of delivery but not that much progress was seen to be made and of course 2020 we've had covid so it's a major issue a weakness for her and particularly amongst young voters who might be quite disillusioned you know that she hasn't seemed to be make much progress that um the capital gains tax was, was abandoned and so on now there have been things they've done like they've they've put in standards on rental properties and things like that but it's just I'm not sure it's perceived to have been an area of success at all.
2: That year of delivery uh, thing almost gives me chills I remember Julia Gillard uh, announcing one year as a year of delivery as well which did sort of raise the question as had the real Julia thing you know it always raises the question well what were you doing sort of before now and and speaking of real Julia um, I think that is one of the as an as an outside observer that is one of the most striking differences and advantages that Ardern brings into this election uh, and to her uh, success so far as a, as a politician, as a political leader. And that is she does come across very much as a natural person, as a natural leader. She, she seems to uh, be very uh, comfortable in her own skin. She does these, uh, you know, Facebook Lives and, and these kinds of, you know, almost like fireside chats. Um, but they are very natural. She's... Um, not, doesn't doesn't come across as a confected product. Um, either of you have a view about that?
4: Um, generally our, our donor is she's phenomenal at relationship building, and it's something that she did prior to becoming leader of the Labour Party, and therefore prior to becoming Prime Minister. Um, and in using things like Facebook Live, she, she used e-marketing, what we call e-marketing, really effectively. You know, two-way communication, more authentic, down-to-earth communication, less polished. A lot of her videos and Facebook Lives, you know, they're not professional videos and professional images. They're much more natural, sometimes a bit, you know, oddball and quirky. And I think that that helps. And then, of course, you know, she's had a baby in office, you know, the the only mm. second Prime Minister mm. of the world to do. And we've seen all those images. I mean, as much as her being pregnant at the dispatch box in, box in Parliament. And so that's... And she's been forced to be authentic, I suppose, in that way because she couldn't hide it. Um, and I think that's how people relate to her. So it is a major strength. It's just whether it's going to, you know, be upheld th- as people go through, you know, economic trauma post-COVID and people worry about their own jobs and livelihoods.
1: Yeah, I agree. I mean, I remember when she was first elected... We were so used to hearing politicians who were um, really practised and sticking to the line that they wanted to say, you know, and um, had listened to all of their focus group advice and had workshopped ideas and so on and so on. And um, commentators were saying things about the Prime Minister like, "Um, my gosh, she must have good focus group people and she must have outstanding advisors and she must have this and she must have that because she sounds like she means what she says. And it took some time really, for people to accept that actually she, she, she does come across as very genuine because she is very genuine. I mean, you don't often hear her get backed into a corner. She, she doesn't make those kinds of missteps because she's trying so hard to sort of funnel conversations in particular ways. Um, I mean, you know, there are other critiques that are made of her leadership style, but I think certainly she definitely um, differenti- differentiates herself in that regard, and it's been a breath of fresh air in our politics.
2: Yeah, that's a really fascinating observation, I, Maria. I, I, I'm I'm kind of minded of um, of John Howard in that regard, and I mean they're obviously quite different uh, political uh, you know, characters, political leaders, but there was a sort of a um, an authenticity about Howard—you actually essentially knew where he stood on most things. Um, he was very predictable, uh, and to some extent, you would say the same thing about Scott Morrison. There's nothing particularly adventurous about him, but he's rarely—he's really caught out being too clever by half. I mean, there are a few examples of it, I guess. But authenticity, or at least the the sense that someone is publicly who they are privately. Uh, it does count for a lot with voters, doesn't
3: it? Yeah, I think. Look, there is a, a truth to that in both cases that you you gave there. I I don't know Jacinda Ardern um, well enough to um, to kind of comment on her, but I guess what you sort of said about Howard and and Scott Morrison is really quite interesting to me because that is that is true. I mean. Um, there was a definite sense with both of those leaders is what you see is is what you get. But then there was also like quite a lot of clever calculations in how things were said. And so even though they were coming from um, a true set of beliefs, they were also very well calibrated to sort of speaking in a way to sort of specific audiences uh, to, I guess, let th- let them know that you know um, I'm on your on your side. So so it's it's a sort of a rare gift, I suppose, when poli- political leaders have the capacity to kind of cognitively dissonance to be sort of genuine and open, uh, or or at least genuine and true to themselves, but also to deliver that in calculated ways for the political audiences they're talking to.
2: Yes, very good point. We might end there because we've been running quite long. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thanks, uh, Maria, for your comments today. And uh, and as always, we'll look forward to seeing you, uh, having you on Democracy Sausage next week.
3: Oh,
4: yeah, my pleasure.
2: Uh, and thank you, Jennifer Lees-Marshman, uh, for your expertise on New Zealand politics. Thanks for being on Democracy Sausage again.
4: That's great to be here.
2: And to you, Jennifer Haywood, also brilliant to hear your insights. And I hope we can prevail on both of you to... Come back on to Democracy Sausage at some stage as the election, maybe more than once, indeed, as the election nears. Because we, are, we, I think the more we understand about our very close neighbour, the, then the more we can um, uh, understand the, the political situation there, and uh, and and really get something from looking at that election as it uh, as it plays out. So, thank you to you all for being on Democracy Sausage, uh, and we'll talk to you again that is you, the listener, uh, next week. Um, There'll be another Democracy Sausage uh, toward the end of this week, as always, uh, Thursday evening that should be out, and we'll look forward to uh, talking to you then. Bye for now. Bye-bye. Bye.